Lucky number two. Welcome, dear and faithful listeners, to The Library Game, an eclectically indecisive book club. My name is Amy. I'm Lacey. And we are your guides in this methodically random way of answering that dreaded question, what do I read next? As a quick reminder, The Library Game is a system of randomly picking out a book that we have used in the past and we're reviving for this podcast. It's basically just a way of narrowing down from rows, sections, shelves, and books to a random book within a library. So to get us started, to jump right into this episode's book, we use the RSSB coordinates. Again, that's row, section, shelf, book. Those coordinates were eight, three, one. 13. And that led us to The Plotters by Unsu Kim. And to go straight into our by the cover, this is the section where we look at the cover of the book. We don't read the back. We don't know anything about it. And we make wild guesses as to what this book might be about. We do that thing you're never supposed to do. We judge the book by its cover. So this book is bright orange and it has like a shooting target outline with a red sort of velvety armchair and then like a dotted outline of a person's body sitting in the armchair right smack in the center of the target and that's that's it that's all we get yeah it just says the the plotters across the bottom a novel unsu kim uh yeah so that that target if you imagine like if you're going to a gun range for example and the closer you get to the center of the target, it, there's, you know, different numbers counting in. So you have like different score on to how close to the bullseye you can get. And if you notice, they superimpose the X that would be at the very center of a target. They ghosted that through the chair a little bit because the chair is kind of set in front of the target. And that X is right over the heart or where the heart would be in that dotted outline of that man. So it definitely gives you a bit of that mystery right off the bat. I don't think this is a giveaway because it printed out on the library receipt. (laughs) This actually is a book that was translated from the original Korean. So I think that'll be interesting. I don't know that I've ever read um, something that was originally in Korean. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that I haven't read too many books that were originally in other languages, aside from like old classics and stuff that have been translated through the ages. So I'm going to let you kick us off on what you think this book might be about. Okay, so I I don't want to get too in the weeds about it. I'm going to say that this is a assassination plot, spy versus spy kind of thing. I mean, you know, that I'm kind of cheating by just going by the plotters there, but, <laughs> uh, but that's where I think this. I think it's going to be some kind of like clandestine spy versus spy assassination. I'm going to run with the idea of like maybe two assassins that are against each other. Okay. So are they working for like uh, competing, I don't know, guilds? What what is what do assassins work for? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what? Let's go with former partners turned against each other. Okay. Yeah. 
What about you? What do, what do you got going on here? I'm going to go a little different direction. I think that this might be more of like an Ocean's Eleven kind of thing. I agree that there's probably an assassination just with the person in the target, but I think it's going to yeah. be a motley crew, Ooh. you know, with some amateur hijinks. Let's get the crew back together, maybe. Kind of, you know, like, yeah. You son of a bitch, I'm in. You know? Something like that. So I'm thinking it's going to be a little bit of amateur hour, a little bit of fumbling to like pull off some massive stunt. That. I like your idea better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> and I also need to say this because our our listeners don't know all of our follies that happen off camera. We were <laughs> We were trying to look up how to properly say this author's name and in the course of that found a video of somebody talking about this book but also talking about some other works by Korean creators and we accidentally thought that we learned about the plot through this video and if that had actually been the plot it was zombies so i guess curveball maybe there's zombies i don't know well you know and with your luck on uh got not supernatural beings (laughs) showing up in books if there's vampires in this i'm gonna lose my shit that's gonna be so funny (laughs) uh well are you ready to find out you want to you want to read the cover uh, I want you to read the cover because you're the one that has it with you. All right, here we go. So there, the back cover has several like author praise or whatever. I'm going to skip all that. And the inside cover, the very top thing is more praise, but I'm going to skip that part too and just read the synopsis. All right. Behind every assassination, there you go, there is an anonymous mastermind, a plotter working in the shadows. Plotters quietly dictate the moves of Seoul's most dangerous criminals, but their existence is little more than legend. Just who are the plotters, and more important, what do they want? Resing is a seasoned assassin. Orphaned at birth and raised by a cantankerous killer named Old Raccoon in the criminal headquarters, the library. Hoo-hoo. Oh. <laughs> Resing uh, never questioned anything, where to go, who to kill, or why his home was filled with books that no one but him ever read. But one day, a job goes wrong, toppling a set of carefully calibrated plans. And when he uncovers an extraordinary scheme set into motion by an eccentric trio of young women, a convenience store clerk, her wheelchair-bound sister, and a cross-eyed librarian. (laughs) What? What? Here's your motley crew. Are you kidding me? Rissing has to decide if he will remain a pawn or finally take control of the plot. Unsu Kim has crafted a fiercely original and literary novel crackling with action, unforgettable characters, humor, and soul. But make no mistake, The Plotters is a top-notch thriller in which the gun is always loaded, the knife is always sharpened, and you will think twice about getting a cut and shave from someone called The Barber. Ooh. I'm fucking stoked. I, I'm pretty excited. So I am going to go back and look at just the inside cover review. Uh-huh. It says the plotters hums with menace, humor, heartbreak, and savagery. The killers and schemers haunting its pages range from dens of villainy to desperate scenes of quiet domesticity, offering a view of the world from the depths of its own shadow. The result is wild, weird, and completely engrossing. I I cannot. I wait. have very high hopes. I'm excited. I think you were you were closer. This whole like Motley Crew kind of thing. I think you hit that on the head. It seems like there's some definite bizarro things that are going to be happening, and I'm in. I'm here for yeah. that. Maybe another kind of absurdist yeah. vibe. Yeah. 
you know, I have to say, I'm really glad that this isn't like an overly serious, like Korean War, almost historical, but still fiction. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the kind of shit that my dad would read. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, I think it's a little more serious, but it's giving me vibes like Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. Did you ever read that? I never did read that, but I think you you told me quite a bit about it. It's, I wouldn't call it a thriller, but it's kind of a mystery and it's fun and just bordering on the edge of bizarre, but in like kind Uh of a silly, fun way. So- if I were to get any kind of vibe just for like from the reading of that, and I don't think it's going to be exactly the same or anything at all, but there's a movie called Mr. Right. If you've ever seen it, it's got Anna Kendrick in it and oh, Sam Rockwell. Yes, I have seen that. Where he wears like the red nose killer kind of thing, where he's like a really good assassin. And she's just like this chick that gets swept up in it and they and they fall in love and all that. But there's a lot of comedy in it and stuff like that too. So I wonder if we're going to get, you know, a little bit of, similarity there that's me kind of reaching for what do i think this might be like you know i want to see when it was written 2010 2010 okay so a bit ago but not ancient right (laughs) so i don't know if this is a clue about the book at all but i just found the receipt from i guess the last person who checked it out and it is the items that they returned when they checked this out so the two items that they returned are um, the first season of The Mentalist and Casablanca. <laughs> so I don't know what that tells us about the book or the type of person who reads the book, but there you go. All right, you ready? Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. Let's go. Let's do this. Well, so I feel like we got maybe a decent mix of your prediction and my prediction out of this. What do you think? I mean, I I think I was expecting it to be more silly. It was absurd and sort of bizarre, but not silly, in my opinion. It was, like, really dark. Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of, like, little things that we can get into, but before we start with that, let's do just like a real quick run through the story. Uh, This book does a lot of flashback and forward. And so the plot itself, I feel like the actual like chronological plot of the book isn't very long, but Mm -hmm. it's the flashbacks and stuff that fleshes it out. Yeah, fleshes it out. Okay, so do you want to walk us through some of the basic parts of the story? So our main character is Ressing. And the background that we learn about him is that he was found in a trash can outside of a nunnery. Mm-hmm. Get thee to a nunnery. <laughs> it's never <laughs> fully explained why, but Old Raccoon, who is a leader of like an assassin's organization, finds him and decides, I'm going to adopt and raise you and have you live in my library, which is inexplicably the headquarters of my assassin's organization. <laughs> and then like train you to become an assassin. It seems like there's other characters that come through that are referred to as like brothers. So maybe this is just uh-huh. Raccoon's habit is that he finds discarded children um, and raises them to work for him. <laughs> like the artful Dodger in Oliver <laughs> Twist. Just like, here, let me just gather these little urchins. <laughs> so yeah, Russing is raised living in this library, watching Old Raccoon. The library is non-functional. People don't come in to check out books. However, there is a librarian that is always employed. So the only people that visit the library are assassins coming or people delivering 
jobs to them. And yet it is full of books. It is meticulously maintained by Old Raccoon, who we never learn why he's called Old Raccoon either. Was he ever Young Raccoon? I don't know. (laughs) I like to think that maybe it mentions, I think, Old Raccoon was raised in the library too, right? So he's like carrying on the next generation. So I wonder if he was just Raccoon at one point. Maybe. You know, oh, yeah. old raccoon also believes that reading is not a worthwhile endeavor. Well, he reads an encyclopedia like over and yes. over and over again, and a I think he even reads a dictionary. Yeah, there's an interesting detail in there about how like the way he maintains the library is like at a certain point he was like no more books. So if I get new books, old books gotta go. And there's this binging and purging of books in the library. <laughs> Which, by the way, can we just talk about how cool it is that we stumbled across this book, by the way, where, like, the home of the main character is the library. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and the library is also called the doghouse. There's a lot of things in this book that don't make any sense and are never explained. The doghouse, I believe, is Old Raccoon's joke. Like, it's his own little... He's throwing shade on the whole enterprise of this assassin's guild stuff and it's his way of just being like hey hey screw you also though this is the most prestigious assassin's guild in south korea (laughs) and what are you gonna do about it you can't come at me because i'm the fucking old raccoon (laughs) so resting grows up in the library and he eventually is trained in being an assassin and he becomes a very good assassin for old raccoon and At some point, though, he makes a mistake. And that mistake basically comes from this idea that there are assassins, there are the people that run the guilds, and then there are these people called plotters. And the plotters are the masterminds, they're the guy in the chair on the cover of the book. And they're the ones that go through all these meticulous details and create these masterful plots so that these assassinations can be carried out. And when they're done, it's just kind of like, well, nothing to investigate here, I guess. Or it ties up everything with nice little ribbons and everything like that. And so... Yeah, the assassins don't plan anything. They're literally told, go here, do this, do exactly this. Do not deviate from the plan. This is how I want the person to die. This Mm -hmm. is where they're going to be. Show up at 837, you know, very Mm -hmm. detailed. And nobody knows who the plotters are. Yeah, they hide behind layers and layers of secrecy and paranoia and safe houses and couriers and and things like that. That's sort of the history of how he's ended up where he is. But the book starts off, he's on a job where he is assassinating an old general who's like retired and lives out in the woods with his dog. And I guess that's a point to make is that this is very political. It's mostly political figures that they believe they're acting on the behalf of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we kind of start in the middle of his hunt, you could say, of the old general. He's on a mountainside and he's watching the general's morning routine where he comes out and he waters his plants and he, you know, he talks to them and everything. And there's a lot of introspection, a lot of reflection on Resting's part in this and just throughout the book where he is just waxing philosophical about every little thing he sees He's very interested in trying to understand the thoughts that the general might be having, like trying to really understand his world and why he's doing the things he's doing. And he actually Mm -hmm. ends up not doing the assassination at the time that he was planning to. And there's a whole bit where he's like, there's a right time and a wrong time. This wasn't the right time. So he goes to sleep Mm -hmm. and then the general finds him 
And Resting makes up a story that I think he's hunting. And he goes and he stays the night. They, like, drink together. They chum it up. I think the general is aware of who he is and what's going on. Oh, the general 100% knows. There's no way he doesn't know. Like, throughout the whole thing, I think it's mentioned that he has kind of, like, this little smile on his face and... Yeah, he goes, he spends the night, you know, the general's just like, you're going to freeze up here, so just come on down to the house, you know, and like you said, he definitely knows what's going on, right? I mean, he's out, I'm sure he's out living in isolation because of his role. I think they talk a little bit about the war and how these generals rearranged the country, and it was the transition to a democratic South Korea I think it's probably a, a mention to the war between North and South Korea, I'm sure. Yeah. And I think Resting even mentions having seen him bring in jobs. Yeah, he recognizes. And that's surely the general recognizes him, too. It's never explicitly stated, but he he just always has this look to him. But yeah, so then the general ends up telling this whole big, long story about this fisherman who is really good at spotting and harpooning whales on this whaling ship. And he, go, I mean, it goes on and on about how he then has this experience where like a whale, I think, saved his life. Like he got caught up in the rope that he harpooned a whale with and he got dragged under with the whale. And then like the whale saw him or something and like brought him back up to the surface and stayed with him. And then the whale ended up getting away and the guy got back on the boat, but then he couldn't go fishing anymore. I have a quote from that that I really liked, which was just... It was something along the lines of men have become small and crafty as rats and the days of giants were over. Basically just saying that human beings have taken over the world, but they were like shitty little creatures and the big noble beasts of the ocean were like, they're the giants. They were pure and good and all that and people suck. It was basically, I feel like, the gist of the story. But it was this, again, this big, long, like a epic story that this old man told him while they're eating rancid meat. Because he didn't have a refrigerator. <laughs> so he spends the night with the general. They have really like a heart to heart. I feel like the general makes an impression on Resing. And mm-hmm. he he wakes up and leaves and then goes back to his spot. And this is, you know, again, this is the very beginning of the story. So you're kind of just getting an idea of what, how it's going to go. And at least for me, I had this impression of like, oh, here's this hardened assassin. And... He's seeing this man and he's having this like turning point in his life and he meets the general and talks to his mark and realizes what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I thought he was going to run off and abandon it. But no, he just gets up the next morning, goes up, waits for the general to come out and then he kills him. And then he's like, "Mm, it's no good for a dog to be by itself. So then he kills the dog too. The dog's name is Santa. (laughs) Yeah. So he killed Santa. Yeah. Yeah, I want to say I had a similar feeling of anticipation, like, how is he going to navigate this now? You know, how do you how do you look the person in the eye after you shared a meal? They drank a lot together. It definitely is an interesting way of setting the tone for the whole story, because it's simultaneously very philosophical, very introspective, very like... I understand the nuance of human and bang, he's dead. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I was expecting it to be silly, remember? So that was, it was really jarring for me when he he just kind of cold-blooded kills him. Yeah. You know? But then from there, you know, he takes care 
of the general's body. He he wraps him up. He wraps him up with the dog because there's a lot of talk about how affectionate he was with the dog, how the two really were like, I mean, you know, man's best friend, right? He wraps them up together and all this stuff. And I think that's where we start to hear a little bit of this rumbling of, well, that wasn't in the plan, but it's probably fine, you know. That's the first point where we learn that he's he's doing something outside of the plan. And at this point, it seems kind of small, you know, like, oh, he just, he also killed the dog. That's not that big of a deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you learn later that it, actually that is a really big deal. Yeah. So he takes the man and the dog to Bear's pet crematorium, where we meet my favorite character, Bear. I love Bear so much. That's I made a note here. I had a little clip on the thing and it just says, I like Bear. That's all. That's like, that's my note. I like Bear. So Bear is this gentleman who runs a pet crematorium. And there's a lot of talk about how, how could this guy possibly keep a pet crematorium in business? Well, he does it by cremating the bodies of assassination attempts or successful assassinations on the down low. And Bear is, he's really interesting because he's very, with wrestling, he's very chummy. He can like berate him sometimes. He bemoans things. You know, he's like, I can't afford that. I've got daughters. And he complains and, you know, very friendly talk. But then any of these higher up guys show up and it's bowing and kowtowing and, you know, yes, sir, and thank you and, you know, all that. But it is his livelihood. So Ressing brings him the general and the dog. He takes great care in what he does. And so after he cremates the bodies, he grinds the bones up into like a fine dust and then puts them into a box and everything. That's all to continue the covering because if there's a bone, there's DNA. So yeah. there's, it's very precise routine mm-hmm. to make sure that half the time nobody even realizes that the person has died. And that's, you know, depending on the specifications of the assassination. You know, there are assassinations right. that are ordered to be, to look like suicide attempts, or there are ones that are meant to look like assassinations. It, it's all dependent on- like a car on, accident. Yeah. And it's all dependent on the narrative that the plotter designs. And what we end up finding out a little bit later on is that when Ressing takes the ashes back to the library to show to Old Raccoon to say, you know, this is done, we find out that the body being cremated was not the plan. And we learn this from Hanja, who, similar to Ressing, grew up, I think he was a little more in and out of the library. He didn't stay solely at the library like Ressing did. And Hanja has kind of made a name for himself where he's kind of running his own company. I think he, on the legal side of things, he runs a security company. And there's some commentary about how, you know, ironic that is. I think it's compared to, you know, like, oh, if you own the cure to something, you also want to own the means to create the disease or or something along those lines. You're you're in the business of making sure that that disease stays in play. And so similar with Hanja, it's like, oh yeah, I I sell security to these real big corporations and business people when in fact I'm also one of the people that is, you know, not necessarily pulling the trigger myself, but having the trigger pulled against these same people. So, But Hanja gets in a whole tizzy about how the general was supposed to look like he was assassinated. It was supposed to be on the news. And now people don't even know that it happened. 
because he was this hermit living out in the woods and who knows when they're going to find out that he's just not there anymore. So for Hanja versus the old raccoon, I think Hanja is like the new school. Mm-hmm. Old raccoon is the old school. And mm-hmm. we learned throughout that old raccoon's business is really on the downslope. So he yeah. used to be the king of everything, but it's really, he's kind of on the outs right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, just the business in general is not doing as well. So it used to be that assassinations you made, you know, you made a whole lot of money and mm-hmm. they were a big deal and important and there was a process that you followed. And now there's so many players and they're doing it for cheaper and cheaper and it's like smaller. Yeah, they talk about like illegal immigrants that are willing to do any job for any amount, doesn't matter. The class has gone out of it, if you will. And I think some of Old Raccoon's downfall, I guess you could say, is that he seems to have lost the desire for anything. Like he just, he he seems to have just kind of given up. He just doesn't care. Yeah. So Ressing kind of screws up, you know, this assassination. It's not a big thing, but it does cause some ripples. I think this one in particular was more of like, it wasn't an affront to the tradition of assassination and plotters and all of that in general. It was like Hanja wanted this job specifically to advance Hanja. And so it was a taboo mistake that Ressing made, but not so wildly crazy as what you often hear. The way it's described when other people have screwed up other plotters stuff. He's still like, this isn't good for Ressing. Like he's he's fucked up. But Hanja won wants resting to come work for him. And two, Hanja is still trying to maneuver and wheel and deal. And so I think his desire to like, okay, we got to shut this guy down has, isn't quite where it might've been. Yeah. There's another job that resting gets sent on. It's to kill a girl that his friend was supposed to have killed, but his friend let her go. Mm-hmm. So now this is the big no, no, you can't do this. You've, ruined your career yeah so his friend chu was supposed to kill this prostitute and instead he kind of helps her escape and tells her to lay low and in doing so he knows that he's going to be hunted down as well so he goes on the run he stops by and sees resting before well actually i think he's i think he's been gone now that i say that i think he's been yeah kind of in hiding for a while yeah he completely goes for yeah. a good time longer than anyone expect him to be able to. There's some talk about how like if you you know if you go against the grain, your clock is punched in like within weeks, maybe two months if you're really good, and Chu is described as like the best, and so you know they expected him to last a while, but he lasted way longer than uh anybody thought he would. Yeah, but so Resin gets sent to sort of clean up after him once they find her, because they do find her. Again, there's a plan for how they want her to be killed. And after meeting and talking with her, Resin instead gives her the option to be drugged mm-hmm. instead, which is, he, I think she was supposed to be strangled, strangled. with a scarf. Yeah. So uh, he gives her the option of a better death. Yeah, and in this scene, when he finds her and meets her, she knows because Chu told her about some of this stuff and she was able to to get by for a little bit. So she knows what he's there for. And so she asks him, like, how are you going to kill me? Can I, I think she wants to write a letter to 
her mother, I think, or something. I mean, there's like a couple things that she's like, can I this, can I that? And, and Resting's like looking at his watch constantly like, okay, we got to get this done. Resting's, this is, I mean, with the general and with her, you just start to understand that there is something really not right with him. Yeah. I assume from his upbringing, but he's, I would say, probably would meet criteria for some sort of psychosis or something because he's so ho-hum about killing people and he'll sit and have conversations with them Mm -hmm. and like he recognizes their emotions and validates them and then also is like, but I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Very calmly. And again, he goes into like these little details and it makes me think of things like Born Identity where he talks about how he notices, you know, I see three exits or, you know, I know at this altitude, you know, like all these crazy details that like, I think we see it in a lot of like assassin media, I guess you could say, or in these types of stories, just that hyper attention to detail. And that's one thing that I noted, Rusting talks about how there's so much necessary and unnecessary sensory input and it gives him headaches and he can't filter it out. Like at one point he's, he notices a man crossing the street and his shoelace is untied. And he's like, talks about how like those kinds of things would just hurt him because he can't filter any of it out. And what I love about it is it gets into this psychology of just like the brain looks for threats and any threat is a threat and the brain can react to that threat the same way that it reacts to an actual threat. And so I think it gives a little insight into maybe why wrestling is this way is that he is such a good assassin because he can see these minor details and he notices all these little things, but he does have that detachment And he also cannot filter out the good from the bad. So all of this is, you know, painting him to be a very cold, almost alien kind of character. But that's not all we see of Ressing. So we also get to see Ressing at home. Mm -hmm. So he no longer lives in the library. He has an apartment where he has cats and he dotes on his cats. He loves his cats. They have the best names. Oh, I love them. Lamp and Desk, right? Lampshade and Desk Lampshade, are the names right. of his cats. Yeah. <laughs> and they're so sweet. And they love him and they're nervous of other people. And I forgot about Lamp. How could I forget about Lampshade and Desk? Oh, Because it's overshadowed by this cold-blooded killer, but then he's also the guy who buys big cat towers and spends all his money on his cats. Yeah. You know, he goes to the cat cafe. And then we also at one point get a flashback where... We don't get the detail, I think, about what happened, but there was a point in time years prior where he had made a mistake. A big mistake. Yeah, big enough that he was going to be a target. And so he leaves the life. He gets a new identity. He goes and lives in a small town and starts to work at a factory and like builds a different identity. It's interesting because it doesn't really show, but I think if you read into it, this is old raccoon sticking his neck out for resting. He is flexing what clout he has to save resting from just being offed because yeah, you're an assassin, you're super skilled, you have, you know, very specific set of skills or whatever it is that Liam Neeson says in that one movie. <laughs> but you're expendable. And as far as this whole ballet of coordinated killing and you know this dark underworld you are the lowest of the totem pole and you know we can always train another trigger man 
the fact that Old Raccoon did that for him, I think, really does show an affection that he doesn't really show in in a traditional sense. Yeah. I just thought, though, that the side story about him going to the factory town and working in the factory was interesting because he... He doesn't know how to human. Yeah, that's part of it. He gets there and he doesn't understand, like, how to wash his clothes. Yeah. Or that he should wash his clothes instead of just, you know, like, buying new underwear. Yeah. (laughs) You know, he goes to work in this factory and he meets a girl and he falls in love and they live together. And it's like he's building this little life. And then he gets a call from Old Raccoon and Old Raccoon's like, you can come back if you want. He's like, I don't know if I want to. I don't think I want to. And so Old Raccoon's like, have a happy life. Yeah. And then he kind of goes about his business and he gets, things are going fine until the factory girl makes a comment about, she's obsessed with talking about getting married and having babies. Mm -hmm. And the 20 year plan to where they can buy a bigger apartment. (laughs) Yeah. And he just realizes that he's kind of on a hamster wheel now. Mm -hmm. And that freaks him out. I think there's a little bit in there where he recognizes that, like, he isn't good for her because of, like, the way his brain is. I will say, I also made a note. It talks about her, like, oh, she's so perfect. She does the laundry. She cooks their dinner. She does all their grocery shopping. I wrote down, wow, she's so perfect. What a perfect domestic woman. And they're gross. (laughs) Like, it was just this whole, you know, she's cute. She's petite. She's studying and falling asleep at her desk while she does literally i'm like what the fuck do you do resting you're living in this house too and it's i don't know it was just like how does she do it all and she's always happy and like later on it says that a lot of times she like cries in her sleep and stuff and i'm like i don't i I don't like this this weird idolizing of this girl but there's also a part of me that's like well resting's weird and he doesn't know how to human and so maybe he's not getting the full picture you know he might be seeing all these details but he's not understanding well and if you think about it if those are things that no one's ever done for him or he's seen anybody do that's that's like superpowers to him you know i guess i don't know it just hit me in a in my feminist bone or something i have an aside that i wrote down on this it is probably a culturally insensitive aside so i will preface it with that however there's a note You mentioned about her doing the laundry, and he talks specifically about her doing the laundry and hanging their underwear in the window. And when I read that, it triggered this memory of college Uh. (laughs) where I had had two sweet mates. So I lived in like a – there were six girls in one room, and we were split into, you know, like two-person bedrooms. Anyway, my sweet mates uh, were from Vietnam, and – They would do that. They would hand wash only their underwear and then hang them in the window. And it made me think like, is that, is that like an Asian culture's thing to, to hang your underwear for like air drying in open air like that? Cause I don't, I don't know anybody who does that. And they didn't do it with their other clothes. It was just, I, I I would imagine it's probably just like clothes were typically dried outside. And if you live in an apartment, your only access to outside is the window. But like, why didn't they use the dryer? didn't have a dryer. At the dorms they did because I used it. Well, okay. <laughs> but. And it's like, it's the it's just the underwear. That's the part that is boggling to me because it's like, okay, if you just, that's how you're used to doing all your laundry, but it's just the underwear. It's delicates. Anyway. I don't know. <laughs> 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 I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so, underwear aside, 
Resin gets freaked out. There's also towards the end, you kind of learn that maybe it's like maybe it's like a self-hate kind of thing. Like I don't deserve mm-hmm. a good life mm-hmm. that he leaves. But he goes back and falls like straight back into being an assassin. Yeah. Doesn't say a word, leaves without a trace. Yeah. And he watches her find that he's yeah. gone. He sticks around to watch her get upset about Again. it. He's a weird alien. It's interesting. But yeah, so he did have his little eight months of trying to be a normal person, which again, I think might be one of those tropes that you see in these, you can't have a normal life and, you know, all this stuff. And like, yes, I can. Watch me. Shit, I can't have a normal life, you know. That was one thing uh, throughout this whole book that I felt like it made me think a lot of John Wick. And I went and looked it up and John Wick came out in... 2014 this book came out in 2010 so there was a part of me it was like oh was this book inspired by something like john wick i was like nope and i was like wait was john wick inspired by it's very (laughs) this like criminal hidden underground it's there right beneath the surface nobody knows that it's there but it's there and there's these different guilds there's a dog (laughs) (laughs) there's these different guilds vying for power and it's like the lone guy against them all but it made me think quite a bit of that too which i liked because i really liked john wick i wanted to know more about the world of john wick and as we were going through this book i wanted to know more about these guilds and like the machinations the political machinations between them and stuff so so i think We've covered pretty much everything I would want to cover up until the point that he discovers a bomb in his toilet. (laughs) Yeah. I think we said it. He, just like Chu, he decides to go a different way with the prostitute girl. However, he still does kill her. And I think at this point, though, he also is just like, listen, if it's not me, it's going to be somebody else and it's not going to be as pretty. At least this way, you'll be comfortable. And he, but his big mistake, and he knows it, he knows it's a mistake, is that he gives her this choice. But then at the same time, he has this, why do I even have these drugs in this briefcase that was given to me for this mission if I'm supposed to strangle her with the scarf? He questions that later on too. But yeah, so he comes home. I think he has beer week, which is something, I think one of the chapters is called beer week. And that that chapter actually is the one that flashes back and tells the whole story about working in the factory and meeting that other girl. But beer week is just like after he has a bad time after a job or something he often gets headaches and stuff and so he just holds himself up in his apartment and he drinks beer all day long and while he's doing that he discovers a bomb in his toilet it made me think of what's the mel gibson and danny glover lethal weapon one of the lethal weapon movies danny glover sitting on the toilet and there's a bomb but see he isn't sitting he he finds it before he sits on the toilet I think he's vomiting. Oh, that's right. Yeah, because it's beer week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he finds the bomb in his toilet. He immediately thinks somebody's trying to off me. You know, it's Hanja trying to off me because I didn't do the right thing. I didn't kill her in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like this is kind of the second half of the book, mm-hmm. right? The first half is all about how did he get here and who is he? And then this is more of like the plot, really. Yeah. So he finds this bomb and he sets off trying to figure out who planted the bomb so he gets it analyzed and people are like this is kind of weird almost like a joke bomb yeah like it's it's comedic how this bomb has been well that and he also tears his apartment completely apart looking for fingerprints and i think it said like the person was really messy like very obvious about some of the stuff that they did yeah 
Um, and it didn't make sense because normally it would be quiet and people wouldn't want to know why would it be a bomb? Why would you put a bomb in the toilet? It doesn't make any sense. So he's confused about it. Like he, it makes sense to him that somebody would want to kill him, but in this way doesn't make sense to him. So he sends it off to be analyzed. They give him some of these details. He's still confused. So he starts kind of confronting people about like, do you put a bomb in the toilet? <laughs> And then he gets his friend Jawan, mm-hmm. right? Jawan, yeah, to track down like, okay, who ordered the parts for this? Help me figure out who put the bomb in my yeah. toilet. Yeah, who ordered all these different components? He comes back and he says, okay, I've traced it down to this girl who works. She's like a cashier at a whatever, like a supermarket. So they go and they sit and they watch her and Resting is ready to. I think he's got his knife. He's got Chu's knife on him and he's going to go over there and like confront her. And they just sit and watch her, and she just is some dumb, bubbly, won't stop talking. Yeah, girl. if she's not helping customers, she's on the phone. And wrestling's like, I don't know her. He's just like, there's no way. Why would this girl put a bomb in my toilet? That doesn't make any sense. She must be working for Hanja. Yeah, he eventually gets frustrated. And he gets up and he goes in the store. And she's just like, hi, how can I help you? What kind of candy do you want? You should really eat this kind of candy instead of that kind of candy. Yeah, he gets a Snickers and she's like, you should get this kind. It's the Korean kind and it's cheaper and it's made for the Korean palate. (laughs) But he's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? So he leaves and he's like, this is, you're wrong. This is not the right person. So Mito is the name of the girl, the, the cashier, and Jawan finds a connection between Mito and a university chemist or something. Yeah, who's known to be a plotter. A plotter who had recently died, I believe. Yeah. Which was kind of a big deal, I feel like, because the plotters are so secretive. And he had become basically like a head honcho one, very famous, and had died recently. And within their world, it was big news. They do also mention, I think... Pretty early on, they just briefly mentioned that Mito, the girl, has a sister named Misa who's in a wheelchair. And they keep talking about how she's in a wheelchair. And I had a moment where I was like, is this like the accountant? Do you ever watch that with Ben <laughs> Affleck where you, yeah. there's the person on the other end of the phone? is It's a robotic voice. Yeah, what's the word when you don't have speech? A nonverbal. It's a nonverbal girl that he like grew up with, right? He met her at a facility that was for people in the spectrum. I briefly thought that I'd guessed the plot that like, oh, Mito is just this dumb airhead and then her disabled sister is the real plotter. And <laughs> yeah. spoiler, that's you, you would that's never wrong. you would never <laughs> suspect. And they come to find out like looking into her history, they realize like, oh, she Mito's connected to this plotter. And then also that the girls, their parents died in a car wreck. That was an assassination. Yeah. And so as they uncover this stuff, then they're like, okay, this is definitely, this is the girl. This is her. What is she doing working in a convenience store? Why does she behave this way? What the hell is going on? So Ressing follows her to her sister's knitting shop. He shows up on a different day when Mito is not there. But Misa is there opening up. And so Ressing goes and like helps Misa with this big box that she's trying to get into the store. And he says that he is Mito's boyfriend. Because Misa knows who he is. Yeah. She was like, oh, you're Ressing or something like that. And he just kind of goes with it. Yeah. She's like, Mito has pictures of you all over. Yeah. And she's like, she talks about you all the time. And I think 
she was like, she's mad at you or something. He's like, yeah, I really messed up. I wanted to come apologize or something. So Misa is like going to get tea or something. And he asks if he can use the bathroom. And that's how he finds a hidden stairwell up to Mito's basically like spider nest where she does all her plotting and all this stuff. And, and then he sneaks back downstairs and he and Misa start to have like tea and snacks or something while they wait for Mito. And then Mito shows up with, oh, we forgot to mention the cross-eyed librarian that works Oh, yeah, at the, the current librarian. Yeah. So, okay, Old Raccoon, let's rewind just a little bit. Old Raccoon always keeps a librarian who is a glorified secretary, really. Her job is mostly to keep the library clean, help with organizing the books, because every now and then he'll go through and move stuff around and sit at the desk and tell people if they can go talk to Old Raccoon or not. And... As far as resting is concerned, this lady has no thoughts in her brain. Like, she has no brain. Like, she does not think about things. She has no interests. She knits, and she has these little plushies or something. Oh, yeah, I forgot about the plushies. <laughs> now, later on, in the knitting shop, there's, like, this whole, like, oh, here's Mito, and here's the cross-eyed librarian. Now all the knitting and the little plushies make sense because she is connected to these two sisters. I need to... So Misa is extremely naive. It's never oh, yeah. mentioned how old she is, but she speaks and behaves and her just like understanding of the whole situation that's going on around here is so young that if they didn't say that, oh, she has this shop or whatever, I would have thought that she was a child. Yeah. So... Is there an implication that Misa also has some sort of global developmental delay kind of thing? I don't think so. I think it's just that trope of just like the super sweet, innocent sister and the older sister wants to keep her safe and, you know, all that. I think the idea is that like the two of them very obviously experienced trauma with their parents being killed, you know, and all of that. And then... On top of that, Misa, you know, having to use a wheelchair and I think as a result of the of the car wreck and everything. And so I think it's mostly just a almost too sickly sweet, this is my innocent, perfect angel younger sister that we cannot corrupt with our horrible lives. And honestly, it kind of skeeved me a bit yeah. at times. It was just unrealistic. Again, she was painted as so innocent and naive that it came across as delayed which didn't help that resting kind of falls in love with her too and again that's probably that commentary on resting's you know longing for the opposite of his own life and seeing it in other people i feel like he falls in love with her in the sense of like a child though mm. my interpretation of everything that he does for her is what something you would do for a child so, like, later yeah. in the story, there's a point where it snows, and he, like, she says, oh, I wish I could go in the snow. And so he shovels, and he takes her out in the wheelchair, and he's like, you're not going outside unless you put your hat on. You know, that's yeah. just very something you would say to a child. But anyway, so come to find out that Mito is basically plotting the plottiest plot that has ever been plotted by a plotter who could plot. And that is the plot to destroy the plotters. <laughs> She's over it. She hates it. She hates the whole thing. She thinks that they're all monsters and they all deserve to die and herself included because she is a plotter and she is one of the monsters. And she thinks that if Ressing would just do what she fucking tells him to do, she can 
burn it all down. And there is a there is an aspect to that that I just freaking love because like when Mito kind of like drops the veil, she becomes this like honestly this kind of badass bitch and she takes him to that little hole in the wall restaurant she's like this bitch makes the best food and we're gonna eat it and here's the deal you know and and then she's like going over all this stuff and she's like yeah by the way what the hell why did you uh give her the pills and he's like why did you give me pills to give to the prostitute if you wanted me to do it she's like i just wanted to see what you would do why'd you fuck it up (laughs) it's just like this whole really bizarre scene and i think what's really funny is reluctant resting like eats something that she tells him to eat. he's like yeah that's actually really good through it all she's just like but this is delicious and don't disrespect the lady that owns this but that place. scene also shows you not only that she's a bad bitch but that she's also fallen so far into this that she's been corrupted mm-hmm. and she's a little crazy she has this whole bit that she goes on about god's intestines do you remember that part? Yeah, that's that's a, like what they're eating the the food that they're eating. Yeah, She's like, this is this is what it's like to eat to eat God's intestines. It's fucking weird. Oh yeah, she is she. I, well, and again, I think it's one of those things that like you can't exist in the world that they exist in without being off. You know. Yeah, wasn't it? So the whole thing was like man was created in the image of God, therefore God has intestines, and they were eating. Pig intestines? Yeah, which is the closest. Pigs are the closest, I don't know, organs are the closest related to humans. Therefore, we are effectively eating God's intestines. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Like, that's where you kind of get into this, like, bizarro, dark humor. And a lot of it just comes from, one, like, the characters are weird. And two, resting is just having these, what the fuck, (laughs) thoughts about people, too. So, So, her being you know, corrupted and fucked up, she's aware of it and mentions it. Yeah. And that sort of plays into her end game plot. Mm-hmm. So her end game plot is that she wants Ressing to get information from both Hanja and Old Raccoon, sneak records from them so that she can then start to leak those records to bring the whole thing down. Mm-hmm. And then she anticipates that um she's gonna go kill the barber, who's like another renowned assassin, and she's gonna make it super public She knows that she's probably also going to die. Her plan is that she will die in taking down the barber, Mm -hmm. but she's cool with it. Like she wants Ressing to watch after Misa Mm -hmm. and she's going to, she's going to take it all out and the cross-eyed librarian's going to leak all the information because that's what librarians do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. She's not going to take out the barber. She's going to take out Hanja. Okay. The barber is- uh, Oh, the barber's the one that kills Chu. Yeah, and then Resting takes it upon himself to go kill him as, like, revenge. Yeah. Which is his first time that he's killed somebody for personal reasons. What's cool, though, is that as we get into Mito's plot, Resting is like, I'm not going to do it. And she's like, yeah, you are. Yeah, you are, because you're going to get something out of this, too. What I like about this is that the story kind of picks up. I really loved the whole thing about how Resting goes and sneaks into this lawyer's safe house, the lawyer that works for Hanja. And he sneaks in through like an air vent grate. And again, this is a plot that Mito has has laid out, but it's very like Ocean's Eleven or, you know, other like assassin movie things where it's like, I'm going to do this cool sneaky thing. And then I bring the guy up here and I shoot him in the kneecap to make, you know, I'm like, if you scream, I'm going to shoot you in the other kneecap. I'm like, I'd already be dead. Like, there's no way you could shoot me. And I'm not just like wailing and screaming on the ground that's where it seemed unrealistic i don't think anybody gets shot and is just like "Mm." 
Ouch. I don't know. I mean, I've never been shot. I don't, I mean, I can't say for sure, you know. Resting loves to shoot people in the kneecap. In the thigh. Yeah, which seems like, you know, if you hit the artery in the thigh, that's like person's dead very soon. Yeah. Right? Anyway, I, it's maybe not hyper realistic, but it was felt very cinematic. Like I could see the shot for right. shot, you know. I want to see this as a movie. I really need this story to be a movie, you know. But so he gets into the safe house. He gets the lawyer. He makes the lawyer open a safe that has this ledger that Hanja has. And then also all this money. He fights a couple goons, which is fun. And then he manages to get out and like hand over the ledger to Mito, who I think just shows up in a car and then drives off, which is, again, that part I was like, really? Like all this plotting and you just drive up well he was supposed to go with her and he was like nah i'm just gonna go sleep in the subway with the bums for a little bit yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) i think what was it one of the bums in the subway shares some uh what's it called soju soju yeah which by the way man by the end of this book every time they said soju i felt like my mouth water i was like i want some soju. And if I had thought about it, what I should have done is I should be like, hey, let's have some soju and drink while we <laughs> while we do this. That would have been fun. By the end of the podcast, though, we probably would have been incoherent and just absolutely ridiculous. But anyway, so I think that's when he goes off to go confront the barber, right? And yeah, because he's like, I don't know where to go. I don't know what I'm going to do. And he kind of finds his way to the barber's shop and then he gets a haircut. Yeah. Because the barber's really a barber. So he goes and he has this real personal interaction with the person that he plans to kill. And they have this conversation and everything. And the barber recognizes what's going on. And eventually he goes over. And again, such a cinema, like, oh, the showdown with the barber is so good. He goes and he like locks the door and then he pulls out just just like this gnarly army guy knife or something. And there's the whole like, don't fear the man that's practiced a thousand kicks. Fear the man that's practiced one kick a thousand times or something like that. Resting is like, okay, I can shoot people. I can do, you know, like all these different things. I can fight with knives. And the barber's like, you think you can fight with knives? <laughs> you know, he didn't say that, but he just stands there. And he doesn't move. He doesn't do anything. He waits until wrestling comes at him. And then he just does like little sidestep slash, you know. And this, I have to say, feeds into something that I find absolutely terrifying. The idea of being like slashed or stabbed with a knife is to me scarier than being shot. I feel like I would be more scared if somebody was holding a knife at me than if someone was holding a gun at me. And I don't know why, but knives terrify the shit out of me in that aspect. Really? Yes. I feel like they're pretty equal for me. Oh, no. There's there's something so much more intimate about being stabbed with a knife <laughs> that it just adds the weirdest layer to it that I'm just like, I want nothing to do. I mean, obviously, I don't want to get shot either, but there is something visceral about the idea of being stabbed that I'm just like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> well, Russing does get stabbed. Mm. By the butcher. So many times. And you think that he's going to die, but then there's this, you know, like the God machine thing Mm -hmm. where at that last moment, I think was the butcher's wife shows up and tells him to stop. She grabs the blade, hurts herself. Oh, that's right. Yeah. She grabs it with her hand. Yeah. And then he wakes up with Mito doctoring him. Yeah. I think they're at Mito's safe house at this point. Yeah. He was like 
almost dead. There's this nice little sequence where it talks about there's running water somewhere. His little like I'm almost in the afterlife fever dream state. I kind of liked those. <laughs> like sequences. the gladiator yes, field. I almost, I almost <laughs> said that. Yes, exactly that. So yeah, I mean, I think this is pretty much endgame. So he's recovering. He's not really super in on the whole plan, but Mito and the cross-eyed librarian are out enacting their plan and in the end, Mito is supposed to go confront Hanja. Hanja still doesn't know what the hell is going on. He just thinks that his stuff has been stolen and that Resig wants a bunch of money from him. Mm-hmm. And he does he drug her? I think yeah. I think Resing actually drugs Mito, steals the stuff, like the suitcase of stuff out from under her bed, and then he goes yeah. to be the one who confronts Hanja. Yeah. And uh he stakes out the location that he wants this all to happen. And he's now in on the plan where he's like, this is supposed to be really public because we want it to just blow Mm -hmm. up. So he goes and stakes out a location. He goes and buys like a bunch of new clothes and stuff and calls Hanja up and he's like, be here at this time. Yeah. And then he leads him on this wild goose chase around uh, like like a mall. Yeah, it's like a shopping center connected to like a hotel and convention center or something like that. Yeah. He's got a room and he's watching out of the room, and he's watching Hanja like, go to the third floor, now go to the fifth floor exit, or whatever, fire yeah. exit door, now go to the elevator on the And he's doing floor. all that to suss out where Hanja's spotters and snipers and yep. stuff are. So he ends up confronting Hanja in an elevator, and this is where it just gets completely bonkers. Yeah. He's throwing, like, Molotov cocktails. The elevators are the kind that are all glass, and they're on the outside of the hotel, So they overlook this little plaza area. So it's very visible, but it's still a tight, captured, confined space. He starts making as much of a crazy mess as he can. He's shooting his gun to scare people, get them off the elevators and make them run and scream. He's throwing Molotov cocktails. He sets the other elevator on fire. He's like, people aren't paying enough attention. The elevator on fire is not causing enough of a ruckus. (laughs) And so... He busts out the side of the elevator and just starts pitching money out. People are like really noticing then. So that's really the culmination of the story. So he's making as much of a scene as he can. The cops come out. He's shooting stuff everywhere. And he's having this conversation with Hanja at the same time. And Hanja's still like, I don't know what the hell is going on. Well, and Hanja's like, why are you doing this? It's pointless. It harkens back to basically a quote that says it doesn't matter who's sitting in the chair and it doesn't matter who pulls the trigger so there's this reoccurring theme about like the chair is the plotters or the plotters are the ones that sit in the chair but you get rid of the plotters it's just an empty chair anyone can sit down in the chair and that is the conceit of this world is that it doesn't matter who does it someone is always going to go sit in that chair who should be the people sitting in the chair because Otherwise, it's just an empty chair. It's a vacuum, basically, a power vacuum that will someone, because humans suck, will always fill that vacuum. Yeah. And it's interesting because Ressing, Ressing is the one who's making that argument that like all of this doesn't matter. Yeah. And yet he still helps and goes through with it. So even though he's saying that, it's like he still has hope that maybe. Yeah. Maybe it will be effective. Well, and I think what it was is maybe that, you know, just Mito's commitment to it, it becomes it less like take the person out of the chair because Mito wants to blow the chair up, you know? And so I think that kind of starts to lean into him. And it's interesting because all the arguments that he was making to Mito and that he talked about 
in the beginning of the story where he's, you know, where the backstory of this whole world is being set up, that argument of it's an empty chair, it doesn't matter who sits in it. He tells that at the beginning. And then in this scene in the elevator, Hanja's the one just trying to desperately throw that argument out as a way to keep himself from dying. He's like, you know, you it doesn't matter if you kill me. What, what yeah. you know, what does that matter? Because someone else is going to do it. Do you really want the butcher who runs the meat market, which is where all the low-level assassins that have no class and no code or, you know, whatever, you kill me, the butcher's probably going to be the one that runs things or, you know, whatever. And so it's this desperate scramble to hold on to that power for himself because without it, there's nothing. So the book ends with snipers shooting, resting, full of bullets. He describes like, oh, that one must have hit my liver. Again, this like detached introspection. But he describes his end as actually pretty peaceful. He hears the flowing stream again over the pebbles and and then he dies and that's the end of the book. So there's two things that I want to talk about before we do our rating. The first is... Just generally about, so this book is a book that was originally written in Korean, translated to English, and all languages have idioms that are common and maybe don't translate, especially if you translate them literally. And there are a lot of things in this book that I'm not clear if these are like Korean idioms that don't make sense to me or like seem bizarre, or if this is the writer being extremely creative. Okay. So I have a couple of examples that I wrote down. One of them is the port city where the woman was hiding looked as run down as a diseased chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's just a weird analogy. There's another one that says you can't shit in your pants just because the toilet's dirty. I wrote that one down too. (laughs) Yeah, because I think, does Bear say that? It's in Bear's chapter. I don't remember. Oh my gosh. I have that. Yeah, you can't shit in your pants just because the toilet's dirty. And then there's, I think I have one more. Our Mito might act like a donkey in heat. (laughs) And it's just, I'm curious to know if those are common or like more common sayings or if it's unique. I mean, it's interesting because like you think about comparing the port town and that's the town that the prostitute girl tried to run away Mm -hmm. and hide in. Comparing it to a diseased chicken, I think, you know, I think my brain probably would have gone to like a beat dog, like a mangy dog. Like that seems like the more Americanized maybe. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe I, it's kind of without knowing Korean and without knowing, you know, cultural terms and the idioms and stuff like that, that's hard to say. I would love if we've got some people out there that maybe are a little bit more familiar that would be able to give us some insight onto that. I mean- Shit your pants because the toilet's dirty. That one, I feel like, is probably just a creative thought, you know? (laughs) It's just pretty fucking funny. I don't know. I mean, because it it seems pretty universal, you know? Yeah. There was one more. This isn't really one of the idioms, but I'm going to just share my favorite quote because I feel like it's kind of related and I'm already looking Uh at my notes. So there's a point where Resing is describing a, I think he's like a bodyguard. Oh, his, 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 like a pack of hot dogs? <laughs> yes, he described this man saying he looked like a pack of hot dogs, but then he continued to just refer to the man as the pack of yeah. hot dogs. So <laughs> my favorite quote is this sentence, the pack of hot dogs stared at him and tried to look tough. <laughs> <laughs> 
and out of context that's just so good (laughs) (laughs) again i think that speaks to the whole like resting has this hyper attention and then once something stands out to him his brain won't let it go (laughs) i think my favorite quote is it's said by mito and it's she and resting are having a conversation and i think they're they're kind of talking about the differences kind of between them and he's probably trying to mansplain something and Mito goes and she's like why because you're a man it's your it's that y chromosome you know women have two beautiful flexible x chromosomes but you have a y chromosome and here's the quote is the only thing your stupid y chromosome is good for is getting hard ons and flying off the handle and i just like i just thought it was so funny <laughs> Again, just like that, like the sass that Mito has where she's just like, hey, fuck you. Like, I can do this. What, you think just because we're girls, we can't be plotters? So I do have to ask you, one of the themes that we discussed in our last episode was your inability to comprehend non-American Oh, my God. How did that go? Oh, my (laughs) God. Okay, so I will say that like everyone else in the world, uh, I was caught into the Squid Game craze, right? Everybody, everybody watched Squid Game. It took me longer than it should have to realize that there was a huge difference. So I will have to say I got a little bit of priming from watching Squid Game. So that showed, you know, the vast difference between one and dollars it was easier for me because everything was typically done in whole numbers rather than like here's three different words for a pound oh yeah i may not know how much a one is but i know that a hundred thousand and three billion like i understand the difference between. yeah and it's like it's like something like a thousand one for a snickers bar so i'm like okay we're getting into a range that i can understand you know and again like you you keep it in, in whole numbers it's not so bad but when you're talking about like 30 quid 20 pence like fuck off i hate that (laughs) and again i'm sure there's someone in another country that's like what the fuck is a quarter you know but that's fine and i know that i could learn it and i shouldn't be so angry that i haven't because that's only my fault but like no one one didn't bother me quite so much because again it was whole numbers and it was at the point where it was just like i don't it doesn't fucking matter the numbers were so big after a while that was like it's it's whatever it didn't bother me that much not as much as the last episode anyway my other favorite quote was Wrestling's tracker friend was telling him like, oh, just go talk to her or something like that. And uh, he was making fun of Wrestling for having a knife with him. And he says, uh, just go in there and talk to her and keep your knife out to keep things, you know, amicable. And I thought that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What is uh, what is your proposed rating? So out of three billion one. Oh, OK. What would you rate this book? <sighs> Uh, out of three billion? Yes. Yeah. That's what he asked for. That's what it, that, that That's was fair. his okay. request of Hanja. Okay. But billion is such an incomprehensible number. <laughs> okay. So I will say I, I really enjoyed this book. I want them to make it into a movie. And I would say, I mean, like a solid 2.8 billion. Because I do okay. feel like I wanted more of the second half of the book. While I appreciated the first half of the book, I wanted more of like the action and the movement and the and the cool fighting and you know all of that. I felt like that got kind of really crammed. I'm a, I'm a, I'm gonna take it back to 2.5 billion. <laughs> 
You talked yourself out of it. Yeah, a little bit. Just because I was like, you know what? I felt like it was a real slow burn at first and that was fine. But I really, really, really liked the second half of the book. And I think it would have been perfect for me if that was the whole book. I can understand why it wasn't. But anyway, what about you? How about out of 10 cans of beer? Oh, out of 10 cans of beer. Okay, so we get different rating skills. I like this. (laughs) I'm going to give it eight cans of beer. I don't know that I would like you know, recommend this to everybody, but I enjoyed reading it. And so I I think I mentioned this in the preview. I was expecting this to be like a book that I read called Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, which is a very silly mystery romp caper, like lots of things that are kind of unrealistic happening. And there was some of that, but this is like Fight Club meets that. Okay. And I honestly get a little bit of that unhinged... Tyler Durden, obviously not as crazy as in Fight Club, but I get some of that unhinged protagonist character from him. Reading it with that kept in mind that this is a dude who's completely lost his shit because of all of the trauma and crazy upbringing he's had, like that made it a more enjoyable read for me. I really did like the darker aspects of it, but I feel like some of the lighter points, like Misa in particular, and the girl that he lived with when he worked at the factory, like there was aspects of that where I was like, this is too, it's too different. It's too sickly sweet. Sure. Okay. Are you, you're showing a contrast between your dark, terrible world and the ideal world that's out there. You know, maybe it's meant to seem unrealistic. I don't know. But it just... Yeah, I mean, I could see that. And there was a lot of it that was unrealistic. Even the stuff at the end where he's like this mega soldier. I liked that, though. That that, I liked that. And if you think about him being the narrator and, you know, all of these things that are sickly sweet and unrealistic and too perfect, that's filtered through his lens. So to him, they are perfect. Yeah. And the stuff with him as the mega vigilante at the end, chucking the... Molotov cocktail. They use the word Molotov cocktail too many times to the point that I was like, all right, there's no way you had all that in one bag. (laughs) It's like a video game. It doesn't work like that. (laughs) And he's like, oh, I threw the Molotov cocktail and it hit a police car and it exploded. I'm like, I don't think that's how that works, bro. It is. I mean, it's just the alcohol that's burning, though. It's not, you know, because like the glass breaks, the alcohol, the fire goes with the alcohol. The car didn't explode. The Molotov cocktail exploded. I thought it was pretty good, and and if you can sort of set reality aside and think of it as the filter through his unhinged mind, it makes it a little easier yeah. to, to swallow. I just, I really want this to be adapted. Of course, any book that I like, I want to see it adapted to, even the ones that I'm like, there's no way that would ever work. All right. So, listeners, if you read the book and you, you know, have additional insights or disagree with our assessments... We'd be excited to hear about that. You can get in touch with us at librarygamepodcast at gmail.com or the library game on Twitter or Instagram. If you would like to read along for the next episode, the coordinates we used were 25, 4, 2, and 7, which led us to Sister North. A novel by Jim Kokoris. All right. So you can join us in reading this book for next time. You can use our coordinates to find your own random book or, you know, play the library game on your own. Let us know where it led you. Catch you next time. Bye.